It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, Simon McDonald spent 40 years at the Foreign Office including working for half a dozen Prime Ministers and Foreign Secretaries during that time. Uh, on today's episode, he talks about what it's like to be a diplomat, being in the room with Margaret Thatcher, what Boris Johnson was really like, and he speaks for the first time about his concerns about Dominic Raab's behaviour towards his staff. He says that some officials were scared to go into Dominic Raab's office. It's the interview that's got everyone talking uh, today. You'll be able to hear that in full on the podcast. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and on a Tuesday, it's... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yeah, we're talking about wardrobe malfunctions all morning, but there's no no issues here. Daniel Finkelstein's here in the studio. Morning, Daniel. Good morning. And beaming in, David Aronovich. Morning, David. How do you know I'm beaming? You haven't even looked at me yet. Space. No, we can see you. There we are. We can see you. Okay. Danny and I actually are famously in the Times, the best-dressed men, probably in the News UK <laughs> building. Uh, and people, I mean, I, I I don't come in very much anymore because it gets embarrassing having people kind of line up and say, oh, I wonder where he got those, and so on. So, um, uh, yeah, we, we are very well-dressed uh, men. And I have to say, I like your jacket. Thanks Matt. so much. It's all right, isn't it? It's nice. It's smart, smart, casual, smart. What's the, what's the most ridiculous thing the Times have made? Did you dress up? Did you dress up as... <laughs> I know. Was it Star Wars? <laughs> in my case, it was it was a fake tan. You had I, a fake yes, tan? Yes, I had to do a fake tan. And just after I left the fake tan place uh, for doing this feature, the guy said, be careful because some of it comes off. <laughs> and my next meeting was with David Cameron in his lounge... <laughs> Sitting on Samantha's, you know, white sofas. <laughs> I sat right on the edge of the chair for an hour, just hoping that I didn't touch anything. That's well, like and but 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 knowing for perfectly well that he'd had to do the same thing on yes, several exactly. <laughs> if you'd have said that, they'd have been a special towel. <laughs> what the, about you? the worst that the worst thing that ever happened to me, Matt, was not was was wearing nothing at all. Um, wow. I was in a spa in Czechos- in in the Czech Republic at Karlovy Vary, and they gave you the kind of water treatment. And one of our most brilliant uh, photographers came down, and I said, "Look, this one." I said, "Just be a bit careful about what shots you take, etc., and what you use." And so I said, "Oh, no problem," he said. You know, we won't get any kind of. Honestly, he lied. 
Yeah. He lied. <laughs> so me getting a complete hose pipe of cold water full in the backside actually made it to the paper. Um, uh, fortunately, the kind of the level of the splash was such that details were obscured. <laughs> it was the splash, uh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> it was a bigger. It was a bigger splash. Uh, well, that's one to Google for later. Uh, right, let's move on and talk about uh, what's actually happening in the news. Uh, let's start with um, Dominic Raab. Simon McDonald, the former permanent secretary, the Foreign Office, uh, has told me that staff were scared to go into Dominic Raab's office because he was abrasive and controlling. It comes after allegations, which he's denied, uh, that he treated his staff badly in three departments, the Foreign Office, the, the Ministry of Justice, and uh, the former Department for Brexit. Interestingly, we spoke to Philip Hammond a bit earlier on, uh, Danny, and he, Philip Hammond made the point that in politics, people get catapulted to the top, very top of organisations very quickly, without sort of rising through the ranks in the way they do in business. And he thought that might, doesn't excuse it, but might go something to explain... And I actually think there's a broader explanation for it. I think that um, this yeah. sort of behaviour is very common in all sorts of professions and has been more common. And like a lot of things, which is one of the reasons why I'm much less, you know, I use the word woke where as, as a sign of contempt much less than is usual among people of my age on the centre-right. You know, we're learning a lot of lessons about how to behave towards other people. And one of the things I've always felt is... Um, you should try to behave to people in a civilised way, in the way that you wish to be treated. And I happen to think that's also more effective. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's obviously enough stories now about Dominic Raab to suggest that he he doesn't behave in a civil way the whole time. I think it rang true to me, somebody who said he, he does 90% of the time and then sometimes yeah. kind of loses it. <laughs> I don't think that's an acceptable way to behave and I also don't think it's an effective way to behave. Whether, whether we judge that it's a departure from the norm to such an extent that it therefore qualifies as bullying and, you know, he needs to be uh, removed for lack of professionalism or whether it's just a symbol that he has the capacity not to be very nice to people we, sometimes and we can all draw our own conclusions from that. that that's, a, that's a more difficult question to judge without knowing a bit more granularity about it. But I'm certainly unimpressed by it, let's put it that way. Uh, David, one of the things that struck me is after I tweeted the, uh, about the interview, there's an awful lot of people who reply basically saying these civil servants need to pull themselves together. Uh, yeah, um, uh, we are absolutely brilliant, a section of the British population. And anyway, it's, it's a national trait in victim blaming. We are absolutely yeah. champions at it. I mean, you meet people who do it all the time. Whenever something happens to somebody... The first thing they look for, and I think it's a way of kind of warding off the the thought of the thing happening to them, is to say, well, yeah, you know, but um, uh, it's their fault, really, and they invited it, or they're incompetent. They know, will know nothing about the situation that people are discussing, and so on. They, in some kind of way, brought it upon themselves. So this is very common. I saw those some of those on, uh, underneath your, um, uh, your tweets about this uh, earlier. I mean, the first question to ask about somebody who, let's say, has a problem with controlling their um, uh, their civility is whether under pressure that goes both ways. In other words, is it something which they display to the people above them as much as to the people below them, or is it something that is purely pushed downwards? Um, because if it is something that's purely pushed downwards, then I'm, we're also talking about a bit of a character tray. Um, we had all that those stories about James Corden in a restaurant with, with the waiter. I don't know if they're true or they're not true. 
But we have all seen people who behave badly to people that they consider to be subordinate to them, or if they don't get what they think they're entitled to, and they don't necessarily think about the consequences for those for those people. Um, for the rest of it, I'm absolutely convinced that Danny's right. Um, there's a changing set of mora mores on this, and behaviour that was acceptable 30, 35 years ago, which I shudder about sometimes when I think about you know how some people did behave, particularly particularly bosses, is just not going to be acceptable. Mm. now and by and large that's good it's interesting as well Dan because I asked Simon McDonald have you raised this about any other ministers is it sort of a widespread problem and apart he did raise concerns about Chris Pincher which is a separate thing that sort of brought down Boris but he said apart from that no so it wasn't that every minister who comes in sort of behaves in this way there's sure. clearly something materially different about yeah, Dominic there, there are behavior. some people who behave like that and some don't and I've never regarded it as an acceptable um, trait in anybody I you know as it happens the Conservatives are in power at the moment I don't think it's something that's confined to uh, Conservatives no, but they've not. got to deal with it they've got to deal with it as they're in power and one of the things that Gavin Barwell um, Theresa May's chief of staff and former housing minister suggested the prime minister does need to have very soon an independent ethics advisor in order to be able to refer these things because I said before I it was hard for me to make a judgment L listeners are making a judgment they're saying the civil servants need to shape up it's, e it's also easy to sit here and and say uh, you know Dominic Raab's completely wrong actually it's all down to the particular circumstances and context of these uh, particular events which we don't know more than the broad details you need I, to I, look at you need to look at those more carefully I, I know enough to be able to say I don't think this is behavior that I would engage in myself that I regard as effective or acceptable I know enough to say that whether it crosses the line into unprofessional bullying you need some independent judgment uh, on the kind of exact complaints and that's why the prime minister needs to uh, have an independent advisor the other thing, thing I'd say, it's, it's, it's an ineffective way of working, by and large. Well, exactly. I, I think yeah, I've yeah. observed over, uh, over my, uh, uh, along my time. I mean, it is far, far, far better for people to feel relatively secure and motivated. I'm just looking at some of the things that Elon Musk has done and said since he took over Twitter. And I, I, and I just thought, are you actually on a course to make no one want to work for you? And everybody who works for you hate you. And what would the point and what would the point of that actually be? What do you think you're gonna get out of them that you did before? All you get is fear. Somebody's Andy's just literally tweeting and saying frightened people cannot think. And that's a really you know, if you want the best out of people who do work incredibly hard and long hours and all of that at the top of government, you're not gonna get that. They're constantly worried and actually, you know, then when things go wrong. People might not flag that things are going wrong until quite late because they're worried about exactly. the reaction, and then and then exactly. you end up yes. in. You know, it, it, look, it does have to be said. We're all talking here from you know from a position of calmness, objectively outside it. People are in stressful situations, and they react they react in different ways. Uh, and obviously, one of the things that. I think government does have to think about is how do how do ministers cope and and obviously other senior members of staff throughout government cope with their stress and not take it out on other people yeah. can they be given uh, and I don't think you know, there's a tendency to think uh, talking about this is somehow soft and pathetic and you know we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing it but I don't agree with that I think it's all part of us becoming a genuine a more civilized society as we learn uh, you know, we learn that we behave in bad ways and seek ways of eliminating it. That's how we gently make society better. I, I just want to add one other thing. This is certainly not something to do with a particular political party. It might be made slightly worse by impatience that governments and their supporters sometimes get when things go wrong and looking for people to blame. And civil servants are quite a good kind of set of people to blame. But we are talking about a set of characteristics which 
which are not politically determined in any way whatsoever. I've met some terrible bullies on all, in all parts of the political spectrum. I suppose actually, you know, the 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 likelihood of finding yourself in a situation where you lose your temper is probably greater if you're running the Foreign Office than if you're the Lib Dem spokesman for housing. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen uh, whoever the, <laughs> without wanting to libel whoever, whoever the current Lib Dem spokesman for housing. But you'd be surprised. Is. You'd be surprised, Matt. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, 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 yeah. and we have seen, you know, we have seen reports of pretty anonymous backbench MPs uh, who've got themselves into exactly this uh, this mess. And I suppose part of it is because Rishi Sunak stood on the steps of Number Ten and promised integrity and professionalism, which then yeah. all of these things get judged against. By the way, you know, when he said it, I knew that the result would be that all these things would come out. But that is actually a good thing. That's 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 an argument for him saying it. Interesting. Uh, because it has forced this public debate, it has forced him people to be held to that standard. And, you know, he's got to then rise to the standard he set himself. But I don't think it was stupid to set himself that standard uh, because that's how government should be conducted. Uh, let's turn our attention to what happened in America last week. And now, well, they seem incredibly slow at counting. But anyway, now we've got more of the results. It's becoming clear, uh, David, that uh, the Democrats have clearly done better than they even expected, never mind uh, the Republicans. Uh, what do you think that tells us, including today, we've just had the news, Katie Hobbs, uh, the Democrats, won the, uh, the race to be governor of Arizona, edging out a Republican opponent. Um, who actually had repeatedly refused to say she'd accept the outcome of the election, was also a staunch ally uh, of Donald Trump. What do you think that tells us about the sort of, the, not just the, the, the red wave of republicanism, but the sort of America's willingness to back, you know, what extremism, essentially? I, I just have to read this out to you. Um, as Carrie Lake, the, um, the Trumpian candidate who uh, has just lost, um, uh, seven hours ago, tweeted out, Arizonans know BS when they see it, which I think is an, uh, an anti-concession. But anyway, uh, a wonderful tweet comes in on the back of it uh, from a guy called Andrew Thaler. He says, one of the greatest concession speeches of all time. <laughs> Simple, succinct, self-reflective. Uh, <laughs> in other words, yeah, Arizonans did see bullshit. Uh, uh, no bullshit. Once again, once again, we apologise for David. Oh, no, 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 I know you're quoting. Oh, okay, BS. No, no, I'm not actually. It's BS. I just forgot that you weren't allowed to say the poo word. So anyway, um, the, con the, You've the, the... You haven't been uh, in broadcasting for very long, so there's no way you would know. Well, I just... It's just a weird thing. <laughs> the, the three of us, I think of us as a kind of, kind of different sort of group of people who are just know, kind of yeah, sitting yeah, together totally... talking. And so on, and I forget. No child we is have out sit there. This. <laughs> we have we have out there twenty million listeners yeah. whom half are children. I always forget that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I'm going on for far too long, and I don't want to stop Danny. But uh, this is the the conventional wisdom now is that this is people calling out um, extremism, and there does seem to be some uh, facts to back that up in place after place. But it's worth remembering that there were 120 plus successful Republican candidates who had uh, advocated the idea that the 2020 election mm. was stolen. Yeah. Um, so although we are part of the way there, and it is deeply encouraging, not least for the West uh, and so on, because we, you know, we, we need that force in American politics, the sensible force in American politics. We're not quite there yet. I know. Well, look at the margin um, that they did lose, but she she attacked McCain, uh, the McCain family in Arizona, where John McCain had been a highly popular uh, senator, and um, she also obviously was an election denier. This is Carrie Lake, uh, the losing candidate for governor, and um, lost by only a little 
bottle. And you certainly can see the glass is half full if you're someone like me who regards that as the kind of almost like a one-issue election, uh, whether somebody believes in in conceding when they lose. Um, but you could also um, uh, see the, gl- the glass is half empty as well as half yeah. full, right? You know, she almost won and yeah. uh, her political stance was from my perspective, horrific. And um, it's very worrying that candidates with that opinion come pretty close. However, uh, it was encouraging. It took a a, a rebuff and um, you have to take the victories when you can get them. And nevertheless... um, what amounts to a, you know, David Frum called a, a sort of quasi-fascism has gone a long way up the beachhead, and I'm very worried about it. And I suppose that's the point, isn't it, David? If you if you didn't, uh, if you wanted to to declare that extremism was in the retreat, you'd, you'd rather some of these results were a bit more decisive. <laughs> well, absolutely, you don't get much closer than than Arizona. Um, it's worth remembering that some of the people like Lauren Boebert, the uh, congresswoman from uh, Colorado, who's just as bad, if not worse, also one just by a whisker but actually she's not calling this a stolen election strangely enough um because that only happens when you when you lose lose. um uh, the big problem as we know is a significant proportion of the american public seems to buy in to some of the most lurid fantasies about how the world works and how politics is Mm. and because america is just so important to us it's not just important for for them themselves but it is just so critical for us uh maintaining for instance support for example support for ukraine in the in the teeth of putin it's it just can't be overemphasized it's very interesting that they that one of the that the only reason that was given why these elections wherever they were supposed to have been fixed have been fixed was not um you know this box went missing uh, this uh, this is they've certified not it was just uh, this can't have happened because these people are terrible so they can't have won, they can't have won and yeah. I think it's this belief that they embody America which also is available in populists in this country who think they uh, they embody Britain that kind of thinking anti pluralism has yeah, to be resisted. And it's a sort of, I've never met anyone who votes Democrat so therefore there can't be anyone it might just be that you only that's the only uh, that's the only people you meet. Daniel Fickerside and David Wanovich there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Simon McDonald. Hello, welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And this is the new and exclusive home of our joint podcasting exploits. Aren't we grand? (laughs) Every Monday to Thursday evening, we talk all things fact, fun, nonsense, utter gibberish, you name it, we talk about it. We also find ourselves joined by the great and the good. That makes it sound accidental, doesn't it? (laughs) So join us for Off Air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the Free Times radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. What's it actually like being a diplomat? Well, somebody really knows, Simon MacDonald. Now, Lord MacDonald first started working in the Foreign Office 40 years ago. By 2015, he was running the Foreign Office, the most senior civil servant and head of the diplomatic service. During his career, he worked directly for six foreign secretaries and closely with five prime ministers. Now, he's written a book, Leadership, Lessons from a Life in Diplomacy, talking about what he learned from those at the top of government. So in this interview, we'll hear how he felt working with Boris Johnson and why he took the decision to release a letter that revealed that Number 10 hadn't been telling the truth about the Prime Minister's knowledge of sexual misconduct allegations about the whip, Chris Pincher. That ultimately led to Boris Johnson's downfall. Also in this half hour, we'll hear from Simon MacDonald, about those allegations of Dominic Raab bullying staff at the Foreign Office. Simon MacDonald telling me that some staff were scared to go into Dominic Raab's office. Well, first of all, Simon came in for a chat initially last week, and I began by asking him what it means to be a diplomat. Diplomats represent the United Kingdom officially overseas. So they deal with consular relations, commercial relations, political relations, the things that people most pay attention to are political relations, but that's just a part of the job. We'll talk about what you did in the job in a moment, but you wanted to be a diplomat from a very young age, not a footballer, not a pop star, not an astronaut. It's true. I was useless at rugby. I was kind of scared <laughs> of being hurt, and rugby was my school sport. Uh, so overseas always appealed most strongly to me. And what makes a good person in the Foreign Office? I think they have to work hard. I think they have to be open intellectually. They have to be able to check in their personal views at the door and do the business of the government of the day. They have to have integrity. They have to have honesty. And you ended up discovering that actually people didn't always know necessarily what you were up to. And you ended up getting quite close, even to Margaret Thatcher. Well, I worked one remove with all the prime ministers yeah. uh, in my career, uh, with Mrs Thatcher least of all, with all the others somewhat closer. But, because you were rising up the ranks. And yeah, and getting... I, one of my early jobs was speechwriter. So yeah. this is a, a job where a relatively young diplomat is working alongside yeah. a foreign secretary or even a prime minister producing uh, speeches, for usually for delivery overseas. And what was that? What was Margaret Thatcher like 
to be to be um, dealing with. She was incredibly impressive. She was focused. She was in command of the room. Whatever, whoever else was in the room, she seemed to be in charge. Apart from once in a meeting where she may have nodded off. Yes, um, <laughs> even the, uh, the the most rigorous uh, um, leader is is human and. Um, it didn't. It seemed that the Prime Minister of Luxembourg wasn't her main concern that day, <laughs> so she tuned out for a few minutes, and the Foreign Office official just uh, kept the conversation going. So, talk me through the, the different foreign secretaries that you you worked for, different parties. What makes for a good foreign secretary? Do you think, and who who was particularly good? Yeah, the party didn't matter so much in the old days because the two front benches agreed with each other. The disputes were within the parties, mostly over Europe, as we saw later. Later on. So I worked for really good foreign secretaries of both parties. They were hardworking. They were networkers. They were people who knew that when the going got tough, if you had a personal relationship with a colleague, you were more likely to land your point than if you were cold calling. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is it maybe almost uniquely in the in the cabinet? Foreign office foreign secretary is such a senior job. And yet it's not a big big spending department, your ability to achieve anything is really down to whether or not you can get on with your counterparts. Correct. You also represent a big country, yeah. and that gives you clout in international meetings. The relationship, too, with your prime minister is very important, uh, representing the government overseas. If you don't have that close relationship with the head of government, then you're kind of hobbled. Uh, and that was a problem with one of my later foreign secretaries. Would that be Boris Johnson? It would. Uh, explain what it was like being in the, you were at the top of the foreign office then, when Boris Johnson was, in, was, was foreign secretary, coming after the Brexit referendum, where basically the whole of the EU hated him because they saw him as the, probably rightly, the figurehead of the man who'd broken this thing up. A couple of quick thoughts. First, Personally, he went down a storm in the Foreign Office. Uh, he uh, was appreciative, he listened to people, he was kind to people, and on a human level, Boris Johnson was popular in the Foreign Office. But with the colleagues overseas, you are right, they saw him as the main reason why their project, if they were EU foreign ministers, their project had been damaged. And so they were glad to have a selfie with someone who was a, kind of a, a rock star on the diplomatic stage. But then things got more difficult because when they got into the substance, there was a lack of sympathy. Um, and was he aware of that? I mean, he's clearly, we know that he's a man who likes to be liked. And being foreign secretary, he presumably wants to go around the world and everyone was going to like meeting him. He had a lot of good friends when he was uh, foreign secretary. I remember Yair Lapid, latterly the prime minister of Israel, was someone he got on particularly well with. But yes, uh, Boris Johnson is a clever and sensitive man. So I think absolutely he knew that these characters were resentful of him, not particularly wanting to help or engage. And do you think that, that carried through then to when he was Prime Minister as well? You know, when he was around the table with, I don't know, Angela Merkel, whoever it might be, that he was still that guy who, who broke things. Well, Angela Merkel is, is a good example. She is the most steely professional politician I've ever seen operate. 
she manages at the same time to have the glint of the personal view, but the substance of the meeting is always what she's focused on. She does. She puts the personal stuff to one side and gets on with the business. And describe those summits for us, because we always see, I don't know whether it's a G7 or a G20 or whatever it might be, this sort of the big round table and the cameras are brought in to begin with and something, there's a bit of small talk or Boris Johnson would crack a joke and you've got Angela Merkel there and Vladimir Putin there. And when the cameras leave, what really goes on? Who are the characters who are dominating? How do those summits work? Well, two things really count. One is uh, the country you represent. So any summit that has the United States has everyone looking at the president of the United States. But then personality and experience play a part. So curiously, at many of the NATO summits I went to, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg was a big talker because he'd been around that table longer than anyone else. So he knew how things worked. He had quite a sense of humour and so spoke uh, surprisingly a lot. (laughs) Presumably <laughs> it was a different one who sent Margaret Thatcher nodding off. Maybe there's something about Luxembourg. It was a different one. They, they, they stay a long time, but they do change. <laughs> they do keep talking. And what about the sort of the way that things have shifted across Europe, particularly Angela Merkel, who dominated European politics for such a long time? You know, and Britain's been through quite a lot of leads. We'll talk about that in some more depth, I'm sure. Does that sort of continuity matter on the world stage? Is it, you need people who've been around a while. Yes. A country that has a foreign minister that's been around a long time is helped in its international effort because just getting around the key people takes quite a long time. Uh, the most effective Europe minister I saw working was David Liddington. Yeah. He did the job for more than six years. He knew everybody. When ministers hang around for a few months, they know one or two people. And worse than that, the people they're engaging with are wondering, how long is this character going to be around? Do I really need to get to know them? And then when it turns out they don't, because there's another one six months later, it's a vicious circle. And what you need is people who know who to pick the phone up to when when something happens that unexpectedly. Well, clearly the biggest thing in sort of this year has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes. Was that a surprise to you, having been a close follower of Putin and uh, his attitudes towards European neighbours and NATO? In a word, yes, because I thought uh, invading Ukraine would be insane from Russia's point of view and Putin's point of view personally. These months later, I think we see it was insane from Russia's point of view, but he still did it. Do you think he can win? No. So how does he lose? I hope he loses decisively, but not cataclysmically. And where will that victory come from? Is there a role that, you know, Boris Johnson clearly put a lot of store by, his support for President Zelensky. What's the game changer? Who is the game changer, do you think? The key players are the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have surprised more than any other single factor. They are defending their country. Vladimir Putin has helped turn quite an inchoate nation into a proud and fiercely defensive nation. So the Ukrainians, I think, are are the key factor. And on their own soil, uh, the signs are that in time, they can turn back the invader. How long do you think that'll take? It could take years. But what they've achieved so far is already, I think, decisively important uh, because the Russians planned on something quick and uh, magnificent. They uh, they wanted to cow uh, their neighbour and crush them quickly and that has not happened and cannot now happen. So the sort of victory Putin needed is simply not available. And what about the 
other countries and, and the way that focus has shifted and you've got the whole world to think about. You know, one minute everyone's worried about the rise of China, big focus on, on the EU, what's happening in America, maybe focus on South America, whatever it might be. Do you think Britain and the rest of the world took their eye off of Russia and the f threat from Putin? Not so much took their eye off, but strategically underestimated. Yeah. Putin had announced as long ago as 2007 that he was fed up of the post-Cold World War order and Russia was back and Russia was going to be more aggressive in the defence and pursuit of its interests. And over the last 15 years, that is what he's done. But always on a smaller scale, a containable scale. So this is on a, a new level. But this time, most of the world, nearly all the world, has reacted against him. Even the countries that are in his corner are not voting for him in the crucial votes at the UN. They're not really supplying him with what he needs, with the exception of Iran. So, Madonna, let's come back close to home. And you touched on it briefly, that the senior people at the Foreign Office, when you started there and since, would leave their own views at the door and deliver on what the government of the day wanted. There is this perception of Whitehall in general, but maybe the Foreign Office in particular, being a sort of hotbed of Ramonas who were very cross about Brexit and spent their whole time trying to stop it happening. Not true. Uh, it is true that a lot of people in the Foreign Office knew a lot or still know a lot about Europe and think personally that membership of the European Union is in the UK's national interest. But we work for the government. We work for the government of the day within the law. And as soon as the referendum result was announced on the 24th of June 2016, I stood up in front of my colleagues and said... This is for real. This will be the main work for us for the foreseeable future. And we will get through this. And for the following four years that I was in my PUS job, the message never changed. You say within the law. Were there times when you were being urged as a civil servant to consider things outside the law? It was an aspect I never thought would be central to my job. For the first 35 years I worked, no government I worked for ever flirted with breaking the law. Even in the most controversial subjects like Iraq, uh, the government was straining to remain within the law. Uh, but Boris Johnson's government explicitly uh, decided to challenge that. One thing I remember particularly was his claim when he became Prime Minister that the United Kingdom would leave the European Union on the 31st of October 2019, come what may. And he wanted diplomats to continue to say that even after Parliament had passed a law to say that could not happen. So there, there was a disagreement. Do you think that sort of standards in public life have been eroded to a serious degree over recent years? Yes, it is feels worse that the government under Boris Johnson was challenging some of the foundations of our country, that some of the institutions whose independence was important to the functioning of our country were being attacked. So I think of the judiciary, the mm. civil service, the BBC, all these institutions are needed for the UK to function ideally. Uh, the government, of course... Uh, has a role, but the government has never challenged the independence of these organisations until Boris Johnson. And what does the rest of the world think of, well, that in particular, but in the broader point, and actually then having a prime minister who lasts 45 days and people say, well, 
you know, it was worse than Italy, it's worse than Greece. You know, Britain was supposed to be the slightly dull, serious, play-by-the-rules country that told other wild countries to calm down and get their house in order. And now we seem to be, we, we seem to have lost our heads. I think a lot of our foreign partners and friends have been puzzled. You know, it is not the behaviour they would expect for the UK. But at year's end, I think the story is a good one, that within British politics, within the British system, we were able to deal with uh, two prime ministers that had lost the confidence of their parliamentary party. And this was done pretty swiftly and cleanly. Such problems can only be dealt with at elections in the United States. We have other means in the UK. Well, we do get to them. And you played a particular role in Boris Johnson's downfall when the, I mean, nothing to do with parties. Uh, they that, that was sort of going through the system. And then along comes the Christopher Pincher story. And what Boris Johnson didn't, didn't know about previous allegations against Christopher Pincher. Number 10, as he said, was the first he'd heard of all this. It was no specific allegations. And then you wrote a letter which essentially precipitated his downfall. When you wrote that letter setting out what he did know, did you think that this was going to be the straw that broke what until that point had been a pretty indestructible camel's back? No, I didn't. But I thought it was very important that key facts should be in the public domain. And for day after day, for five days, uh, number 10 had failed to put um, quite easy to establish facts to the public. So it was absolutely true that there had been previous allegations against Chris Pincher, which had been investigated and upheld. And it was absolutely true that Prime Minister Johnson knew about that investigation at the time. Did you pause as you were writing that letter and think, I just don't want to get involved? You know, civil servants, you're there to serve the government, and then after that you sort of walk away? Yeah, I did pause, and for two main reasons. One is, as you say, civil servants don't do this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but truth and integrity, I think, also count. Uh, the victims were being forgotten, I thought. I thought also important. And third, I'm no longer a civil servant. I'm a member of the House of Lords, so I have other duties too. Uh, the second reason for hesitating was part of the attack in recent years has been against the blob, against the civil service, assuming that civil servants can't work impartially for a government. I passionately disagree with that, but I fear that my intervention would be seen as evidence to support yeah. the case against the blob. You also write your book, but it's literally called Leadership, um, about the, what you need in leadership and what you need to be a leader. Rishi Sunak's only been in the job a few weeks. What does he need to think about? What are the skills that he needs, the people that he needs to make a success of that leadership? Two key things right from the start are a plan that is flexible. If you have no plan, you're not going to get anywhere. If it's no flexibility in your plan, then it will fall apart at the first problem, which I think Liz Truss demonstrated. Yeah. Uh, second, he needs to build a team. Good leaders are able to attract people that they never knew before. They are able to rely on people that they don't know just because these people want to serve and have something to offer. And the idea of personal connection shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. Yeah. And I think that has been a problem in recent times, that the civil service, which had a long record of dishing up experienced officials to serve along successive prime ministers is now in the background and very young and inexperienced people are running around number 10 and they are there only, it seems to me, because of their personal relationship with the prime minister. In the end, the expertise and experience counts more than personal loyalty. A couple of last questions I wanted to ask you. During your time in the 80s, you were in Saudi Arabia. While there was, there was a World Cup 
uh, which is not without controversy. We've got a World Cup coming up in Qatar, which is not without controversy. I mean, it's difficult when politics enters sport and sport enters politics. Should politicians keep out of it? Should politicians go? Should ministers go to the World Cup, do you think? I think they should. I think they should go and support um, the various British teams. But they should also uh, make the political points. Uh, and the players should as well. Gutter is very proud uh, of um, its staging. Uh, and I saw some of the preparations in Doha. Incredible. The stadia are amazing. But this is a chance for other things to be in the spotlight. And what the gutteries are doing over LGBT plus is, is disgraceful. And footballers and ministers need to say that and can say that with effect in the context of this tournament. And actually can do it probably more safely than a football fan who might go and actually get themselves into trouble. Absolutely. Um, last question. Uh, as, a, as a former ambassador and a man who knows his way around the Foreign Office, have you ever seen Ferrero Rocher being served at a reception? Yes. Have you? <laughs> it's always in the context of uh, the ad. Yes. Uh, and uh, Ambassador, you're spoiling us, is always, always a part up. of the joke. What's the best and worst food that you've had served up to you at a reception? Uh, the worst food was in Saudi Arabia and involved inedible parts of a sheep. And the <laughs> best was is generally French. Yeah, very good, very good. That's Simon MacDonald, now Lord MacDonald, former Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, who came in last week to discuss his book, Leadership, which is out today. However, since we spoke then, reports have emerged in The Guardian that he knew about allegations of bullying made against Dominic Raab when he was Foreign Secretary. It's claimed he informally raised the issue with the Propriety and Ethics team at the Cabinet Office between 2019 and 2020. So, just before we came on air this morning, I caught up with Simon MacDonald again, and I asked him what he said to Dominic Raab about his behaviour. When I worked for him, Dominic Raab was not aware of the impact of his behaviour on the people working for him and couldn't be made to see that impact. Colleagues did not complain to me formally. Uh, it was kind of their professional pride to cope. But many were scared to go into his office. He sort of defence was that he treated everyone in the building in the same way. Uh, he was as abrasive and controlling with junior ministers and senior officials as he was with his private secretaries. After I left, I heard that the outcome of the Pretty Patel uh, bullying investigation had a sobering effect on him, uh, and for a time his behaviour improved. Uh, so I hope that this round of stories uh, will have a similar effect. Uh, and I hope that the Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary will look again at bullying complaints procedures for the top of government and the civil service. What are we talking about when we talk about uh, bullying and abrasiveness? Because I, I can see that basically what he considers perhaps forthright, uh, authoritative, assertive uh, instructions to staff you know, particularly junior staff in the room with the Foreign Secretary or now with the Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, being on the receiving end of that might be very different. But what, what, what sort of things are we talking about? Give us an example of the sort of behaviour. It was language, it was tone. Uh, he would, could be very curt with people. Um, uh, and he did this in front of a lot of other people. Um, I think people felt demeaned. Um, and I tried to have that conversation with him. I had several conversations with him. 
but it wouldn't surprise me today if he said, I, I don't recognize that because um, I felt at the time that my message was not landing. So having raised it with him, you then raised it informally with the proprietary and ethics team at the cabinet office. And I suppose there's this, this question that there seems to be a lot hanging on informal complaints, you know, staff coming to you and saying, look, I don't really like it, but I don't want to take it forward formally because I like working here because the Foreign Office is one of the top jobs. But again, you also only raised it informally with the, the propriety and ethics team. That's true. Uh, and that's why I'm saying that the PM and the Cabinet Secretary need to have another look. Uh, there needs to be someone empowered with direct access to the Prime Minister that can go and talk to uh, senior ministers uh, before these informal complaints become formal complaints. In the end, people do not give their best work to someone who is intimidating them. And, and were you ever aware of any formal complaints? In my time, no. And um, do you aware that staff, some people, although some people sort of, like you said, put up with it, did other people leave the department because of it? Not in my time. Not that you're aware of. And then more broadly, what does this episode, I mean, we've, we've talked about Chris Pincher, we've talked about Gavin Williamson, now Dominic Raab. What does this tell us about the culture of ministers and the way they treat their staff and have been allowed to treat their staff? Matt, there's a range. I mean, some ministers are civilised all the time, uh, approachable, decent, kind, but others are tougher. Uh, others feel that they need to be assertive in order to push forward their agenda. They're aware that they have only a limited time uh, and they, you know, uh, yeah, in the end, their behaviour becomes, tips over that line uh, into bullying. And what do you think that Rishi Sunak should do now? He's sort of brushed it aside, says he supports, he has full confidence in Dominic Raab, there were no formal complaints. Do you think it was a mistake for him to appoint him? And what does he need to do to essentially re restore, you know, the confidence of, of thousands of people who work in Whitehall? I'm not going to comment on the Prime Minister's cabinet building, uh, but I do think that the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Secretary need to look at the bullying complaints procedures. Uh, because as we are discussing, what we have at the moment is not fit for purpose. Action is only taken if there is a formal complaint. And there is a feeling in the system that the system is stacked in favour of the minister or senior official. So people hesitate to make a formal complaint because of the effect on themselves. So this needs to be reworked. Uh, there needs to be somebody of seniority uh, and independence and authority uh, that can connect both with the Prime Minister and with the emerging subjects of such complaints. Uh, and just finally, because you'd, we now know you raised the issues of, about Chris Pincher, you raised issues about Dominic Raab. Have you ever had to raise similar uh, concerns informally or formally about other ministers? <laughs> no. It's just those two. Uh, Simon McDonald, I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. Thanks, Matt. So that was Simon McDonald, Lord McDonald. Uh, originally uh, came in last week uh, to record an interview to discuss his book, uh, Leadership Lessons from a Life in Diplomacy, uh, which is out this week. 
Uh, and then I caught up with him this morning just to get his uh, him on the record talking about these uh, these reports that he raised concerns about Dominic Raab's behaviour with him directly. Well, a spokesman for Dominic Raab has been in touch uh, saying that Dominic has acted with professionalism and integrity in all of his government roles. He has an excellent record of driving positive change in multiple government departments by working well with officials. He holds everyone and most of all himself to the highest standards the British people would expect of their government. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.